This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. This is David, and welcome to your new episode of Baselayer with David and Dominic, the co-founders of IOTA. This is the first time on Baselayer that we've had founders of a protocol on, and if you don't know what IOTA is, IOTA is an open source distributed ledger. They claim it's the first open source distributed ledger that is being built to power the future of the Internet of Things with fee-less microtransactions and data integrity for machines. We talked about the differences between Bitcoin, blockchain, Ethereum, and IOTA. We talked about needing an alternative to the incumbent systems before we can actually start getting mass adoption. We talked about data being the new oil and the proverbial awakening that is happening or will continue to happen on the scaling issues associated with Bitcoin and other protocols as it relates to IOTA, how they are solving for fees and scalability and other chains. And we talked about, it was interesting, David um, alluded to Bitcoin as a prototype of a distributed ledger. I think some people out there believe that Bitcoin, uh, as it is right now, was a first iteration. And then in the years following, we're going to see it evolve or change or another protocol out there that's going to do it better. That's to be determined. And I know there's a lot of people in the Bitcoin camp who definitely don't believe that. Um, But we always like to try to have lots of different views and opinions on this show. It's a great, great conversation between Dominic and David. Uh, Very insightful. getting a little philosophical at times, which I enjoyed. So please remember, nothing on Baselayer is investment advice. Please do your own research. On the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the podcast with David and Dominic from IOTA. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve these problems. Go to Lumina.app to learn more. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. We have an amazing, amazing show today. We have the co-founders of IOTA. We have Dom and David. Thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really excited. This is the, I think this is the first time on Base Layer we've had co-founders of a project of a of a protocol, and we typically have had investors. We've had people that are building more kind of the the, the front end systems for people to actually access and to get information about digital assets and crypto assets. Um, but you guys are actually building. A, a system, a protocol that is really quite interesting. I think for the family offices, the high net worth individuals, the institutional investors that listen to the show, one of the things that you guys are really focusing on is what's happening with data and with 
the emergence of IoT, and I think that's really important to them because a lot of investors have spent a lot of time and have been investing in the space. And what you're doing is so interesting because there's so much data that we're creating these days. Um, and you know, I've said it many times before, you know, a lot of that data is going all over the place and it's, we're not necessarily, as humans, we're not necessarily getting incentivized for the data that we create and the content that we're creating. And so what you guys are doing there really kind of sparked my interest and it's really great to have you on the show. So if you could, um, you know, just to find out a little bit more about yourselves, you know, how you founded, um, how you got to IOTA, how you founded it, why you did it. And then we have a lot of questions, you know, kind of unpacking what the project is doing, what the protocol is doing, where you guys are, you know, in terms of, you know, case studies, what you guys, you know, what industries you can you know, potentially help. And so let's just kick it off, you know, kind of getting a background on you both, uh, Dom and David, and then we'll go into uh, IOTA. Yeah. Nah, for sure. So I can go first. So, yeah, I'm David from Norway and the Oslo region of Norway. I got into this space back in early 2012. Uh, and the reason I got into this space was primarily due to my prior interest in artificial intelligence and how the Internet of Things and technology in general would shape the, the future uh, of mankind and our environments. So... I got really into it uh, around early 2012, and then in 2013, um, I met Dominic as well as two of uh, my two other co-founders, Sergey Vanshaglo and Sergey Popov, um, and we started experimenting with different ways of doing the blockchain. Because of course, back then you primarily only had Bitcoin, and Bitcoin has a lot of drawbacks. So for us, it was interesting to experiment. How far can we take this technology? How can we improve upon the technology and so on and so forth? Um, and then in 2014, we started really having a breakthrough with this thing called uh, Tangle or Directed Acyclic Graph Approach, which I presume we will get into later, which would then later become the, the fundament for the IOTA project. Um, so in 2015, we started working full time on that, and that's when kind of um, our past interests in Internet of Things, data generation, and incentivizing and opening and securing these ecosystems came together with our expertise and experience in DLT. So yeah, ever since then, we've been working 24/7 on the IOTA project. So yeah, that's me. That's great. Yeah, uh, so so about me, I I come from the Boring Mountains of Northern Italy, so it's a very <laughs> reclusive area, I would say. <laughs> I, I think uh, you guys, I think you guys are the furthest. I think most of the people that we've had on the show have been more U.S. stateside, and I think it's great that we actually are now branching out globally. However, I'm very jealous of where you guys are living. This <laughs> <laughs> is a very quiet and peaceful environment. And good for innovation, right? There you uh, go. So, so basically, what got me into blockchain is is I I was basically in this hustling period trying to figure out what I could do, how to make money on the internet, and so on and so forth. And and I was not able to charge money because I was too too young to have a PayPal account, right? And that's when I was introduced to Bitcoin, and I quickly uh, went into altcoins simply because I saw some opportunities there. So I started out with mining all coins. And so I made some money with that. And then I tried to set up a cryptocurrency exchange. That's also how I met David. 
And that's, that's why I then also went to the Crypto Valley. So I was one of the first people slash founding members of the Crypto Valley back in 2013. That's why I know some of the other people from Ethereum and, and Charles Hoskinson and those kind of type of people. But so that first venture failed and, and I ended up losing most of my money also because of the, one of the first crashes that happened. And then I got more deeply into development, figuring out how smart contracts actually work, how Ethereum works. Uh, I, I did some uh, hackathon competitions, but then in 2015 uh, with IOTA, I was basically full time into that simply because we, everyone, everybody was really passionate about that and basically dedicated their, their time and their lives towards this, this vision and towards this mission since then. Got it. So I think it's really interesting. Everyone on the other podcasts and when you have interviews with people that are in the space that are building in the space, they focus on the time, you know, usually around 2011 to 2013 is okay. That's when I got into Bitcoin. That's when someone showed me the white paper. That's when I said, okay, this is something I want to take a look at. Some people said, okay, it was 2012 or 2013, you know, it was getting to be kind of volatile and, you know, he had some things that were happening that were not necessarily great, you know, in terms of PR <laughs> for, for Bitcoin and for you know, everything that was happening in the space. But I think it's more interesting to focus on what and the why. What about it? What about distributed ledger technology? What about blockchain? What about the core of the, the technological innovations that are happening there? What about it really kind of inspired you to say, okay, for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, however many years, you know, you, you were building this project, you were building this protocol. What about this, you know, technological revolution really inspired you to say, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my professional career. This is where I'm going to dedicate every single waking moment to building this. What, what, what was it about that? What was it about the core technology that really kind of drew you into this? Yeah, so for me, it was very much the fact that uh, the, the promise of distributed ledgers, of course, back in the early days was that you get rid of intermediaries and you have very low fees. That was kind of the initial promise. And when you start thinking about the digital age that we are very much now living in, and it's increasing every single day, you see that all these intermediaries are just slowing down and making things more costly than they need to be. So being able to remove this and also have the additional component of immutability, that opens up a completely new world. Because up until that point, yes, you had, of course, PayPal and you had the ability to pay for things online, but it's very restrictive and it's very expensive and it's slow. So it's kind of insane when you think about the fact that the internet and the digital realm itself doesn't really have a standard payment mechanism to settle things. And you don't have a cryptographic secure data layer, even though we are generating more data now than ever before. I mean, just in the last couple of years, we have generated more data than the entirety of history before it. And that, that number is just increasing exponentially. And today that data is is kind of uh, imprisoned uh, between these uh, walled gardens of these big, big companies. And yeah, I, I think the ability to use this technology was really what inspired me to, to dedicate or devote my all my time to it virtually over the last years. 
Yeah, and 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 for me it was it was really this this like like everything that David said uh, is is really about this concept of permissionless innovation, right? Anybody can utilize this open protocol, this 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 tool to transfer value, right? And with PayPal, you're actually really restrictive. That also means you restrict the economic potential. Of of our entire society, right? Because you can you say like only if you're 18 above 18, you can actually participate. You can actually earn money. You can actually transfer money now with blockchain and and cryptocurrencies. Anybody can utilize this 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 tool to create new um, uh, products out of it, right? And it's really this open environment where anybody's welcome to join. And so the internet really enabled us to transfer information across the globe and, and we've seen a tremendous economic potential uh, uh, ec economic outcome that the internet has brought right and the same will happen with blockchain where it's now really this this open network that helps us to transfer value and what's very exciting there is really that we're creating new economies that are really based around a different trust model you no longer have to trust a single entity. There's no longer a single entity that actually owns the ecosystem. Like with Uber, they own the ecosystem. They can decide who can participate, who gets paid, and so on and so forth. Now with blockchain, it's this very democratic technology because anyone that participates uh, has the same rights, right? and as, as, at least with IOTA, right? They have the same rights. They, they can utilize this protocol and they can participate and, and engage with each other. So it's a very open and democratic system that, that has a lot of economic potential. And this is why we've also seen this entrepreneurial opportunities in this space to actually be part of it and shape it. I want to get a little philosophical here. So the notion, I'm a believer, I consider myself a decentralist, whereas the liabilities and the fallacies of centralized systems, when Tim Berners-Lee gave us the internet or the World Wide Web, you know, for that much in 91, 92 at CERN, it was supposed to be free. It was supposed to be a democratically free kind of, you know, kind of super highway where information, as you said, can be sent around the world, where we can learn from each other, maybe not necessarily transmission of assets and value like we're talking about now, but it was supposed to be free. And then all of a sudden, you started, as you alluded to, you had big companies, you had centralized systems out there, you had the Googles and the Facebooks of the world start to own that and start to really monopolize that. Um, and so it seems to me, you know, we are at an impasse right now in society where everyone knows if they go to, you know, Google or if they go to, you know, if they go to a map service or if they go to their email provider, it's typically free unless you're paying for something that has, you know, specific more uh, service embedded in it, but it's typically free. And a lot of people today don't associate free with them basically being the product. Um, your data is mined. It is sold to third parties. There's a lot of things that happen that I think a lot of us, it's almost like the matrix. If you guys haven't sort of you know, seen the matrix, <laughs> but it's cool. almost like, you know, we're in the, the, the glass tube with the, the goo and, you know, kind of the, 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 uh, the USB cord in, in our, in our neck. Um, and we don't really realize what's happening. And so from a kind of a philosophical approach, how do you think, you know, at one point in time, do you think we're getting to a point where people realize that, you know, with free equals lack of privacy, with free equals 
lack of my own digital self with incentivizing you know myself with the content and the information that I provide. When do you think we get to a point where people start to realize that and have this awakening? Yeah, it's it's a very good question, and to to me at least, you have to have something to replace it, because human beings are of course creatures of habit. So if there is no better alternative, most people, even even though they are cognitively aware of this fact and they don't like it and they disapprove of it, etc., it it's sort of a necessity if you want to be able to use these services that have become completely embedded in our behavior. So for me, it, it this technology that we're building is absolutely necessary to kind of catalyze uh, the the idea of this democratized, decentralized, um, self-sovereign ownership of your data and your uh, having more options. In order to bring that to reality, you really need an option. You need uh, something that is alternative to the incumbents. And that is really what we want to offer. And, and I could kind of draw a parallel to the adoption of electrical vehicles. Everyone would, in theory, say that electrical vehicles are better for the environment prior to Tesla as well. Like, theoretically, everyone was in agreement of that. But until a Tesla came around and actually showed, hey, we can have a better car and you have these benefits, no one was going to buy some niche niche stuff. So it's the same thing here, in my opinion, that what we are building here as a decentralized infrastructure, it is an alternative. And when people have an alternative that is better, they tend to go with the better alternative. But you first have to give them the alternative. Tom, do you want to opine on that? Yeah, from my point of view, I, I definitely think that there was this big awareness problem up until recently where people just thought uh, naively that, hey, I can use this for free and there is no cost that I pay. But now with all of these hacks that have been happening where, where, where people actually paid by having their data and taken away by hackers and now being uh, utilized, right? They start realizing, hey, identity theft is a real thing. And hey, my data is really being sold by those other people. And it's, it's becoming a big problem for, 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 for those people who had their data stolen. Right. And so it's people, I definitely think that people are really starting to wake up that data is really the new oil and that my data is being utilized by those and sold by those companies to make billions of dollars every year. And now we have these huge wild gardens whereby these, these companies data mine me basically. Right. And now with new regulations like GDPR. And especially with technologies like ours, I definitely think that people are starting to wake up and start realizing, hey, like, I want to demand a new business model uh, that these companies have because I can actually make money out of my data and uh, well, I'm willing to sell it. And you actually need to have these tools uh, to make sure that these new systems actually work, like, for example, decentralized identities, right? Now, with a decentralized identity system, I can actually decide which data I'm going to share and I can decide which data I'm going to sell, right? And we're really transitioning more into this user or like human-centric environment where it's not no longer about the, the big corporates, but really about the human themselves deciding who gets ownership over my data. And I think that's a very powerful movement. And that's why blockchain was created, right? It's giving back the power to the people, giving them the ability to transact without any central inter intermediary, right? And the same is happening with data now. And I think it's quite exciting. 
And so I want to start dipping into IOTA and what you guys have built. But before that, one last question and something that I've been wrestling with for a while. I wrote about it. Um, I obviously interact with family offices and high net worth investors on a regular basis. We just had a pretty massive event where one of your members of uh, your team was there and they uh, saw that there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of interest. It's moved from kind of why would I, you know, kind of invest in the space? Why would I do that to how do I actually invest in the space? And one of the questions that always comes about is this notion of I like blockchain, but I don't really like Bitcoin. And again, I'm not saying that you need to speak for Bitcoin, but at the core of that, there is a, a fundamental kind of lack of information or misunderstanding of the difference between a public and a private blockchain. And so before we get into IOTA, because you guys are addressing you know, that in terms of the, the public uh, chains that you're building, you know, how do you think or how would you, you know, if you've had to deal with that when talking to investors and talking to others out there, you know, at what point in time do you think, you know, we will get to a sense where people say, okay, a private chain is X, there's not that much innovation there. And obviously, you know, the innovation is in a public chain. So, you know, how do you think, you know, if you could, you know, kind of opine on that, you know, this whole notion of, you know, as I said, I like blockchain, but not Bitcoin. How do you think we actually, you know, kind of move away from that? And how do you think we, is it, is it an education issue? And, you know, how do we actually get people excited about the notion of public blockchain? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest drawbacks thus far about uh, from public blockchains has been the fact that they don't really scale. So going back to what I said earlier, like in order for people to really adopt something, it has to work. You have to give them that alternative to use it. And if you were to utilize Bitcoin today for anything mission critical, it wouldn't work. The fees are too high. The throughput is too low. And you could also argue that it's not really that decentralized because you have this mining oligopolis. Um, so I think that is one of the big breaks of adoption. Uh, and of course, this is what IOTA addresses. This is the, the, the trilemma that we have solved in the protocol. But uh, I genuinely think that is the main thing because these permission ledgers, like you alluded to, is glorified databases. There is virtually no innovation there to speak of. Um, but they work in terms of the old business models. So even though you, you don't really do anything new, you can say, hey, we're using blockchain. And yeah, that, that's cool because it's a buzzword, it's, it's vogue. But uh, in order to get to the point of people actually utilizing the, uh, the permissionless ledgers, they have to be production ready. They have to be easy to use and they have to deliver on the promises. And that requires the, a scalable distributed ledger, which Bitcoin is not. Right. And so I think this is a good time. So getting into IOTA and getting into what you've actually constructed. So taking a, a note from um, your wonderful website, which obviously provides a lot of information, I was taken by this, uh, this quote, powering a secure, scalable, and fee-less transaction settlement layer, IOTA will empower machines and humans to participate in flourishing new permissionless economies, the most important one being the machine economy, which we are building. Um, so if you can go into IOTA and talking about the tangle, and then 
as I said, I wanted to kind of, you know, talk at a high level about the macro first and about the data that we produce and what's happening with the data and then getting into more of the intricacies of IOTA. I don't know how many people out there from the family office, high net worth and institutional community understand the difference between the traditional blockchain, which is effectively in sequential chains versus a, a DAG, a directed exilic graph. Um, and so at a high level, you know, start with, you know, again, IOTA and why you built it and what it's going to be doing, what it is doing, and then going into more of the intricacies of the difference between the Bitcoin blockchain versus a DAG. Yeah. So um, in IOTA, what we created um, or what we solved was the issue of fees that you find in Bitcoin, Ethereum, and uh, other public blockchains, as well as the scalability uh, limitation that is in this. So from a very high level point of view, what IOTA is, is a distributed ledger that is scalable and fearless, meaning that you can tra uh, transact with it and you can send data through it uh, completely for free. And yeah, it's scalable, so you can apply it to large amounts of quantities of data and transactions. I'm not sure, do you want me to go into the machine economy or do you want to kind of contrast it to Bitcoin already? Or maybe um, that's the best way to... Yeah, let's let's do with the contrast, I think, because again, it's un you know unfortunate, but also, you know, not a bad thing that, you know, in regards to Bitcoin, it has the Lindy effect. And so when you think of, you know, cryptocurrency or when you think of blockchain, because of the press, you know, it's gotten the majority of the press out there for the last 10 years. So most people who have no idea about this world would associate Bitcoin first. And so what is yeah. the differentials between the Bitcoin blockchain and what you have built at IOTA? Yeah, so Bitcoin certainly did a great job in terms of raising awareness of the principles behind immutability and having decentralized distributed ledger. Like kind of the promise, it, it really brought that to the attention of the, the public, which was a very good thing. But I consider Bitcoin a prototype of a permissionless distributed ledger. And that is because the way that the incentives and the structure of the blockchain in Bitcoin is, is constructed, you essentially have this supply and demand economy where you have blocks that get verified and you have a limitation to how many transactions can get put into these blocks. And you also have a limitation on how many or how often these blocks get verified. Because as you mentioned, they are in this very one-dimensional sequence where you have one block, you put transactions in, it gets verified, then you add another block and so on and so forth. Um, in IOTA, we flipped this completely on its head. And instead of having these blocks, we got rid of the blocks and we only have the transactions or data uh, transactions, which would then also count kind of as a transaction. But what, what happens in IOTA then is that when you issue a transaction, you also validate two previous transactions in a network. And those two previous transactions, uh, of course, do the same with their respective transactions. And so you build up this directed acyclic graph. And I know this is kind of, uh, it's it kind of hard to, to visualize in the head, but um, what effectively this does in contrast to Bitcoin or other blockchains is that you no longer have this supply and demand economy of usage. 
So in like I mentioned in Bitcoin, you have a finite amount of transactions you can put in the block. And if you want your transaction to go through fast, you have to add a fee to it and you have to kind of bid for priority in the chain. In IOTA, this does not happen. So what we've seen when there's high volume in the Bitcoin network, the transaction fees skyrocket. I think it peaked around 80 or $90 um, during kind of late 2017, early 2018. And I mean, you can't have that system be used for anything really. Whereas in IOTA, since you don't bid for any priority in the network because every single user and every single transaction is equivalent, there is no fee whatsoever because we have made validation of the transaction an intrinsic property of utilizing the network itself. And as a consequence of that, you also don't have the scalability limitation inherent. So that is kind of the two major things that IOTA brought to the table, getting rid of the fees and solving the, the scalability limitation in a network. Tom, anything Dominic, to add to that? Do you want to add something? Yeah. Uh, no, I think the office is great. And, and I think a significant uh, step forward that we've provided is really removing the miners. Right? Like David said, the supply and demand economy is hurting the users. And users are big companies. They're family offices that want to move around tokens. Right? And you don't want to have this uncertainty of, hey, like my transaction is going to be stuck and it I need to pay a higher transaction fee because it gives you this uncertainty in your business model, right? Fundamentally. And that means that companies cannot utilize the, the technology itself simply because they, at the end of the day, they want to have products running on top of these ledgers. And we're talking about the entire economies being built on it. And removing the miners is definitely a significant step forward. And, and as we're seeing right now, uh, proof of work is, is really getting a lot of harsh criticism simply because Right now, we're utilizing, I think, roughly 1% of, of, of the global um, power output, right, electricity output, just for the validation of these networks. And that's hundreds of millions of dollars that are being uh, quite literally wasted. And I, I think that IOTA is really the right step forward to show that we can have um, uh, distributed ledger technologies that are open, that are permissionless and that really give value to society and give value to big companies so that they can actually build products on top of it and run their business models with it. So let's go into the mechanics a little bit more. So proof of work, you know, I think more in investors are starting to understand that proof of work requires compute power and requires energy. So you would have to go buy ASICs and you would have to have access to a fair amount of energy. Some people are obviously you know, tapping into solar farms and hydro plants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you need a massive amount of power, as you alluded to, to obviously, you know, be within the system and to run uh, the, the processes that need to be in place to, uh, to mine. And so, you know, maybe talk about the, the mechanics behind how one actually you know, works you know, how the, how it works, the mechanics between uh, behind IOTA. How does the difference between proof of work behind what you guys have actually built? What is the differential so people who could maybe understand? You know, as I said, the more mechanic machinery type of process with proof of work to what you guys are doing, which sounds a little bit more utilitarian, where more people you know within the world can actually participate. Um, how does how does the difference? What's the difference there again? 
Yeah, maybe I can take a shot at that. So if if we think about blockchain, right, we're talking about blocks board which aggregate transactions, and these blocks are generated by the miners, and they're then distributed to the network, and it's this cycle, this process that happens every 10 minutes. And now with IOTA, we no longer have these blocks, and we no longer have this chain, and we no longer have these miners. And so the transaction process itself, like David said, is, is really the consensus component here. So the way that it works is, first let's discuss is, uh, about issuing a transaction. So it's three simple steps. The first step is that you sign a transaction, right? Uh, the second step is that you do the tip selection. And what tip selection basically means is that you uh, run this algorithm that provides you with two transactions from the history that you now have to validate. So this is the, the, the this randomized process whereby you select these two transactions, and the validation process then basically means you check that the signatures signatures are right, and you check that it's not the conflicting transaction, and that it's not the double spend. Now, if that is right, those two transactions, you then go on to the third step, and the third step is that you do a little amount of proof of work on the transaction itself. So this is comparable to um, hash cache. Uh, which was basically doing proof of work for email spam protection. And the same process is being applied in IOTA, whereby you're doing a little of proof of work so that an attacker cannot uh, spam the network infinite, infinitely, right? And then you issue your transaction to the network and you basically wait for someone else to come along to select your transaction and to approve it. Now, what's, what's, what's so unique about this, this process is that now the consensus is really parallelized, right? We're no longer running in a cycle whereby we confirm transactions every 10 minutes, but it's actually dependent on the activity of the network. The more transactions are issued, the, the faster these transactions get confirmed. And that's a unique component of IOTA. And obviously, after a certain amount of transactions have uh, indirectly or directly referenced your transaction, it, it receives these properties the same as in, in Bitcoin, whereby it, it can no longer be reversed, right? It's immutable. And and that's basically the process behind it. Do you think, yeah, so, yeah, I was you know, going to so, add into that. So one of the things that I've had a problem with, and it's, 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 it's in line with the conversation here, is that transactions per second, you know, one of the kickbacks is always, oh, MasterCard or Visa can do hundreds of thousand transactions per second in Bitcoin and other blockchains are so slow. Um, do you think it's really a fair comparison that it's always going against MasterCard and Visa? I, I don't think it's a fair comparison when it comes to technologically speaking, because, of course, what Visa, et cetera, is doing is much, much, much easier. Uh but it is a fair comparison to some extent when you measure the utility, like how usable is this network. So, of course, uh, transactions per second have become very notorious as like a benchmark and people get stuck on that kind of human anchoring bias. Um, I would caution people against using that as the sole metric. But it, to me, I think the, the, the comparison is more about how usable is this network? That is uh, the thing that uh, I think people measure because, of course, with with Bitcoin, if you're just de dealing with a handful of transactions per second, then how can that be a global settlement layer? It's just physically infeasible. 
because like Dominic said, you end up in this queue and when there's a lot of people using it, this queue builds up and you, you, you have to just wait for your transaction to go through and therefore you can't apply any new business models. You can't do anything new. And if we're talking about assets on top of uh, distributed ledger, et cetera, you would be very concerned that your asset is going down in value due to volatility, et cetera. So you can't really trust a network that isn't scalable. Right. Do you, you know, one of the questions I've asked to people who are more in the Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin camp um, is, I, you know, from my perspective, you know, it was supposed to be something where the world embraces it and people could obviously, you know, self-sovereignty and censorship resistance and immutability and, you know, obviously having control of your own assets. Um, but at the same time, it would, in my opinion, um, for the folks that want to participate in the network and become a miner, even though, you know, it seems that there may be obviously a case against mining because of the environmental issues associated, et cetera, that we've discussed. In your opinion, would you like to see hundreds of millions of people, um, you know, kind of having access to IOTA and be able to use it and to be able to participate in the network? Is that, or do you want it to, you know, is it something where it could be, uh, you know, effectively unlimited? Uh, where everyone in the world could participate, or is it something where you know there's some constraints in the in the kind of the processes associated with it? Yeah, so certainly our goal is that IOTA is going to be a global standard for all kinds of payments and data integrity purposes. So here we're not talking just hundreds of millions of people. We're talking hundreds of billions of devices which are emitting data all the time or transacting trading technological resources among one to another. And this is precisely why we had to create IOTA so differently in the first place. We looked at this, this copious amount of devices that will exist in the future and started thinking, how will they be able to participate in a permissionless, immutable ledger environment? And so that's, that was actually the inspiration for us to come up with this completely new approach, uh, which ended up being the IOTA network. Um, but going back to your point regarding mining, yes, of course, isn't, there's the environmental issue that one can um, push back on, certainly. But to me, it's also about the fact that mining represents centralization because you have this competition among the miners. Because if you are the miner that gets to validate the block, then of course you get the block rewards that are built into the block, as well as collective fees in that block, which goes back to this kind of supply and demand economy we spoke of. And that always leads to centralization. So you have these big, big mining pools that effectively control the whole network. And that's an oligopoly. It's far from the um, utopian decentralized promise of blockchain. Uh, IOTA, on the other hand, since you simply issue a transaction and then you, in the process of doing that, you validate previous transactions and every other participant, whether it be a human or a sensor in a network is doing the same thing, everyone is on the equal level. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's, it's really about this completely permissionless open network and therefore you have to think differently from regular blockchain so talking about the devices and i agree with you we've obviously you know as i look upon my desk here i've got you know a few phones i've got a, a you know a watch that's connected i've probably you know home sensor 
lots of other different devices to your point you know obviously you know we have become you know a wireless iot society and we've also become an on-demand society we demand instantaneous gratification we go on netflix we want to see the movie right now we we go on amazon we want the package delivered to us today in the next hour um and so we have all of these different devices do you envision a time and a place where all of those different devices kind of gather different types of data about us. And so if we move to a point where we now have the power, the, the, the user, the human, um, where we controlled our data and whether it was data, you know, regarding our location or data regarding, you know, our purchasing kind of desires, all of those types of different data points are different. Um, and do you see, you know, a world in the future where there's a unified crypto asset or is there multiple different crypto assets uh, or native specific, almost like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, where, you know, all of these things have to interact with each other? Or do you really believe in a more unified kind of, um, you know, specific one uh, kind of crypto that kind of unifies it all? So I can take a stab at it first. So personally, I certainly think that there will always be a couple of different uh, protocols because that's what we're seeing virtually in every segment of anything. But I personally believe very much in consolidation and unification. You need to have this fungible asset class because if you don't have something that is cash equivalent, then this whole promise of on-demand economy and real-time economy doesn't work. You can't, you can't expect your, um, your, your connected watch, for instance, to be a Forex trader that is, <laughs> that is trying to leverage between thousands of different tokens. So I believe that there will only be a handful that really succeed in the long term. So that's at least my stance. Dominic, what is yeah. yours? So, so just to answer from before, right? Our vision is to really create a permissionless ecosystem. And that means that everybody utilizes the same protocol because else we have the same problems that we have today, which means that we create wild gardens that are not interoperable. And we talk about creating an actual ecosystem, an actual economy. And especially for this machine economy, we don't want to have our machines become forex traders, right? Uh, because then you have a data coin you have for this company, you have an energy coin for this company, and at the end of the day, you need to pay in another coin, so you need to exchange it. And that, that is really a, a significant barrier of entry. And blockchain was really created to enable frictionless trade, right, to frictionless exchange of information. And that is why I second, David, that, that there's going to be a few permissionless ledgers and a few uh, cryptocurrencies. But especially for this machine economy and for the Internet of Things, it is very important that we have one um, standard that is being utilized uh, across all of these different industries and is also being utilized by all of, these, all of these different companies. Got it. And so in terms of Tangle, in terms of the work that you're doing and the kind of the use cases, I think for the investors out there, you know, they understand, you know, it's, I shouldn't say it call, call it this way, but old world, you know, kind of industries, economies, you know, you know, technology being something, I guess you can almost call now a, a old, uh, old industry, but technology, healthcare, industrials, shipping, um, all of those types of things out there. What use cases or what industries 
you are you working with right now or are you going to what's the roadmap going forward because obviously in the machine age you know it's going to touch everything but are there ones that you're initially targeting right now uh, that are you know you're having some success with yeah so at the moment uh, if if we can go back a little bit on the history of the iota and how it operates right now so we set up this nonprofit foundation in germany and the iota foundation and we have now over 100 people employed and of course we have a lot of research uh, researchers and developers but also a team that is focused on precisely what you're asking here, like growing these different segments of, of this huge sector. Um, so yes, there are certain areas where we have more adoption than others, but among the hundreds of companies that we are directly collaborating with, you really have pretty much the whole spectrum from automotive to wearables, to healthcare, to uh, infrastructure, energy trading, those kinds of uh, things. So, as the IOTA Foundation, we, of course, try to establish this one global standard for everything. Um, but certainly there are cer certain industries where we are more mature or the technology has been experimented with more than others. I, I think that we're having a lot of success, especially with cities, right? All of these cities around or all of the major cities around the globe now have smart city programs. And we are actually partnered up with quite a few cities now where we are really developing uh, future test beds for IOTA-based use cases, like, for example, mobility as a service, like P2P energy training, and so on and so forth, to actually be tested, right, in the real world. And I think no other project has really such an access to test beds, because at the end of the day, we can all agree that all of these protocols, all of these blockchain technologies today are still a proof of concept. So it means we need to cross this technology chasm for them to actually be productive. And we need to move away from just doing prover concepts and move to actual deployments, actual test beds, to really test the technology itself and to test the, these business models. For example, last year, we actually won a grant by, from the European Commission together with seven cities and 20 companies, uh, where we are now really setting up these, these uh, test beds, smart city test beds, uh, especially in Norway, Trondheim and those cities and in, in, in Western Europe. Are we also doing more in America right now, United States? That's great. And so as we're getting towards the the top of the hour on uh, on the show, you know, one of the things that we like to do is get a kind of more personal, you know, view of both of you. Um, and no, you don't need to give where you live and your <laughs> kind of religious views or your political views, but um, we like to kind of learn vis-a-vis inputs that you put into your brain every single day. And so two of the inputs that we like are books and music. And so we typically ask our guests to come on and say, if, you know, if there's any books that you've read over the last 30 days or the last few months that have been really impactful, that have left a mark, that have taught you something, um, would love to hear about those. And then music. Um, it's my opinion that music shows a person's personality. If they like ambient music, if they like death metal, which we had someone on the other day who was the founder <laughs> of a pretty significant uh, project, and he liked uh, some pretty harsh metal, which is interesting. Um, it shows a lot about a person's personality and what drives them. So I'll throw it to you guys. We'd love to hear from David what kind of, you know, what books have you read first, and then what music really kind of inspires you while you're working? Yeah, interesting question. So 
I used to read uh, or I used to almost read one book per week. But over the last couple of years, that unfortunately has dropped down significantly just due to the amount of work piling up. Um, But the last book that I read was by Yuval Noah Harari, um, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Yeah, he's a brilliant book. And Sapiens and Homo Deus is also very much recommended by the same author. Uh, I also read Enlightenment Now by uh, Steven Pinker, another one of my favorite authors and modern thinkers that really have a good grasp on the contemporary world. Um, as for music, um, I used to be more in kind of a, a single category, like this is what I listen to now. But these days, it's literally the spectrum is all the way from uh, Vivaldi to uh, to uh, Post Malone, you could say. Like, uh, there is wow. no there is no kind of music that I don't listen to uh, at this point in life. I I've, I kind of vowed to never become one of those guys that is just frozen in the time that he was a teenager, you know, like a lot of people <laughs> end up doing. So I, I challenged myself and forced myself to listen to everything essentially. But certainly, uh, I, I still listen to a lot of hip hop. I mean, that's what I grew up on. So my neurons are kind of programmed to to respond to <laughs> to that. But it's it's literally the entire spectrum. From Four Seasons to Tupac. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dom. Yeah. So I have the same tragedy <laughs> of David that that we're too busy in day to day that we don't really have time to reflect on life and to read books. I used to read a lot of white papers and one of my favorite ones was actually about how it took so long for NFC to become uh, actually uh, a product, right? NFC payments. Because there was this big fight between the banks, between the telco companies, between the phone uh, makers on who can actually own the technology and who can actually get the transaction fees out of it, right? So consortiums were being built and it was a big fight and the consumers had to pay because it took so long for this seamless payment option to come on the market. And it always reminds me a lot on, on cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology as well, as well, right? On how this adoption will play out and how you can actually thrive in this market. And, and one of my favorite books is definitely Great by Choice. I think you probably know that as well by Jim Collins. That's right. Yeah, and when it comes to music, I'm, I'm the same as David. I pretty much listen to everything and and these days I don't really listen that much to music anymore, <laughs> simply because, uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of distracting sometimes. Interesting. Yeah. The last thing, you know, I just, because you guys are working on a project that's so interesting. Um, and by the way, Dom, I would recommend if you like uh, kind of legacy versus new technology fights, I would recommend a book by Tim Wu. It's called Master Switch, if you haven't checked it oh, out. Oh, I've read that one. That's yeah, it's a brilliant yeah. book, especially. Isn't that also the book that talks about how uh, decentralized system all systems always have this tendency to become centralized again, like yes. the telephone system, right? How it started out in this decentralized way, and then it started mm-hmm. to become more centralized, more clustered. That's it's right. Insight, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting if you think about that. You know, going into the history, especially here in the United States regarding energy um, and uh, the transmission of energy, we used to have all these small kind of private grids uh, when, it, you, know, for, you know, in the 1890s and 1900s, it was all these small kind of micro grids. Um, and then there was a consolidation 
aka centralization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, yeah, Tim definitely reflects on that. And that's a great book to talk, you know, kind of you know, think about more about those systems. But, you know, kind of the last note is I like to also think about the future. You know, we've in the in the crypto ecosystem over the last year and a half or so, Again, uh, price is not what dictates my interest, nor many of us, you know, in the interest of what's being built. But price has been talked at nauseum about, you know, crypto winter. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of negativity in the space and there's been a lot of people who are like, uh, maybe this isn't working. But then there's all of us who are building, who are participating in the, in the ecosystem on a daily basis, who see amazing projects like yours that are doing what you're doing. And so I like to think, I like to try to think, you know, future out. I like to think 20, 30 years out. And if you could, you know, put on, you know, your future kind of vest and, you know, kind of transport yourself 30 years into the future with everything that you're building and everything that's being built around you in terms of the technology, uh, the technology, you know, very briefly, you know, do you see, what do you see? Do you see, you know, a complete, uh, you, know, you wake up in the morning and you're using things to like prediction markets, uh, are you using things that, you know, have, you know, smart contracts in them are you using obviously IOTA for all of your machines or, you know, they're basically, you know, participating in that network. Do you see it in the next 20 or 30 years or do you think it's going to be, or, you know, we have a little bit longer of a way to go before there's, you know, mass adoption of this? Yeah, so I can go first. So like I mentioned all the way back to 2004, 2005 is when I really got into artificial intelligence and the future of technology. And I don't even think it's 20, 30 years from now. I literally think it's more on the time scale of five to 15 years before this permeates every single aspect of our lives. And what I hope to um, achieve in this is that we have taking security into consideration and we are not owned by one big company that controls kind of everything. And instead that we have still this openness and and humans are participants, uh, active participants instead of just passive participants of this future. So personally, yeah, it's coming no matter what, like automation is the future. Uh, Internet of Things is a multi-trillion dollar market with hundreds of billions of devices going to be deployed over the next decade. There is just no single aspect of our lives that will not be affected by this. And I really hope that the decentralized permissionless ledger wins over an alternative. Um, Because the alternative would first of all also hamper uh, progression, but it will also have very dystopic uh, potential outcomes as uh, yeah as you can imagine when the entire mm-hmm. world is automated and there's also a lot of vulnerabilities you don't want your entire life to be automated and then someone can hijack that so it's very important to have that cryptographic security in place um and as for the the monetary consumption and prosumption to me the the, the beautiful thing about a scalable distributed ledger is the fact that you can pay per usage you can literally pay per watt of electricity per byte of data per whatever it, it is that you are consuming and i think that will become a passive thing 
right now, whenever we order something, we it's a decision in your brain. In the future, this will also be very automated based on previous behavior. And I hope that it's a real-time stream of payments. So if I'm watching a video on Netflix, I don't want to pay the subscription to Netflix. I want to pay for the exact amount of video that I'm consuming. And the second I turn it off, that payment stream should stop. No more IOTAs for you because I'm no longer consuming anything. So that's that's how I see the future. And I certainly think it's more on the time scale of five to 15 years. Wow. Dom, one, one stab at that? No, I fully second what David is saying, right? We are moving into this economy where everything is usage-based. And, and all of us can agree that ownership is outdated. Right. Me and David don't even have a driver's license, so we don't have any car to own. But in the future that we are creating is really that mobility as a service becoming ubiquitous, right? And the future business models of those companies that exist today will have to radically transition away from what, what is being done today, which is selling cars, right? So in the future, it's really about owning a fleet of autonomous vehicles that provide these services to, to, to people. And the exciting part is really just being part of shaping that and making sure that IOTA is really the standard, the protocol and the cryptocurrency that makes up this machine economy and enables it for the future to function. And then waking up in the morning and being able to uh, see your machines function in this decentralized way with this layer of trust, right? And trust becoming a commodity. I think this is really where, where the future is going and it will enable so much new economic opportunities for everyone around the globe, right? We're talking about a permissionless network where you can now really exchange value globally. So I'm really looking forward to people in Africa creating new IoT data marketplaces uh, that they can then offer globally and so on as well. Yeah. Right. And so lastly, what we'd like to do is provide our guests um the opportunity for listeners if they want to try to find more about iota and about what you're building i know you've got a fantastic website and uh if you want to you know ping people you know let people know where to find you where to find uh, more about iota feel free to do that and then uh, we'll be wrapping up yeah so um if you want to learn more about iota and this grand vision that we've uh, briefly discussed here of course there's so much more to discuss but that would take like 10 years to <laughs> to consume everything so if you want to learn more just go to iota.org um, and if you want to follow the project on social media you can go to twitter.com slash iota token and for myself it's uh twitter.com slash David Sunstaba, which is very hard to pronounce, but you will probably find the, find the name if you Google it. <laughs> and and you can also reach out to Dan Zimmerman, who's really focusing on on these relations and these contact points from family offices, investors, and so on. So it's like the contact points for for those people. Great. Well, this was Dom and David from IOTA. This was a immersive conversation, one that I hope we can have again in the future. Um, love the takes about what you envision five to 10 years, 15 years out. What you guys are building is super interesting and something that I think has a lot of uh, potential interest from folks that are focused on IoT and focused on machines, focused on the revolution that's happening there. So again, thank you for joining us. This was Baselayer and we'll catch you soon. Take care. This layer, this layer, this layer, this layer.